Greetings, everyone. It is now time for Marked Safe. Tales of your very favorite and most beloved disasters. On Marked Safe, we discuss events and details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Please listen responsibly and stay safe. And now, here with your hosts, Brianne and Melanie, this is Marked Safe. It happened. It happened. It happened. Man, did it happen. Um, I have moved away. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, that happened over the weekend, and now I am in a different house with um, a whole different computer setup. Well, it's the same computer, but, you know, everything around that will affect the audio is totally different. Yeah, so it's going to be, you know, a little bit of a learning curve for the next yes. week or so. Yes, it is a little bit of trial and error. It's an empty room still right now. There's nothing on the walls in the room that I'm in. Um, I normally don't have carpet and now I do have carpet, but I normally have stuff on the walls and right now I don't. I sound really echoey to myself, but you don't necessarily hear it. So once we actually get this into editing, we will see. And, uh, there's a lot of sounds that won't apply here, like a lot of car background sounds, not so much in this house, but. There may be like I'm right by an air conditioning vent and it seems really loud to me, but I just I have no idea how any of this is going to come across in audio until I've just done an episode. So, guys, if the audio is a little bit weird this week, that is why it will change. We are tinkering with it and it should be um, one way or the other sorted out within an episode or two. So bear with us. I have um, undergone changes this week. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Do you need some decorations? I just acquired some dolls. Fuck off. <laughs> Do you hate me? <laughs> I don't even want to talk about this. Why? <laughs> it's bad. It's not bad. It's bad. What's the safe word? Um, what was it? Fuck. Bubbles. <laughs> Bubbles was the safe word. Bringing it way back to when yeah. we were learning audio back then too. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole new world. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, if anyone's not in the group, um, I acquired... This is not going to incite them to join it. <laughs> there was a you poll. You don't want to go there now. There was yeah. a poll. Are you too... Are you ever too old to play with dolls? I a very misleading poll. Was not. Oh, it was. <laughs> the poll should have been... If you have the opportunity to have three dolls that all look equally haunted in three different ways in your home, should you do it? <laughs> it has nothing to do with your age. I don't care if you are five or 90, you shouldn't do it. Cody said, what's in the box? And I was like, oh, oh my friend sent me, sent me um, these dolls. And uh, it's like, oh, and I opened it and he said, no, like, this no. is something you should have discussed no. with me first. He was like, you get yeah. them out of my house. I still have not told him that they have human hair. Um, Listen, do I need to tell him? <laughs> no, don't tell Bet. him. I'll do it. I'll do it. Then I'll have to move in with you. Not with your fucking dolls, you <laughs> won't. <laughs> 
I love them. Not with your fucking dolls, you won't. They're never welcome around me. You know, I was thinking it would be real cool because their their clothing isn't in the best condition. Oh, I'm sure. I'm God knows what they've been up to. <laughs> they've been busy. They've been super uh-huh. busy. Oh, I'm sure. So I was thinking about getting like some different, like maybe some fur fabric and stuff and making them into like giving them costumes, like making the little boy like a little moth man. If you could see the look I'm giving my microphone right now. Like give them little cryptid costumes. How cute would that be? Mm-mm. Like if the girl no. was like a little Wendigo. No, that'll just embolden her. <laughs> she does not need that help, Melanie. Are you okay? What is wrong with you? Nothing is wrong with me. Oh, something's going to be. I can't wait. Something's going to be. And you messaged me and you're like, uh, Cody is really upset. Uh, I think I crossed the line. I, and I'm I thinking think, you went for the butthole. I think upset is an understatement. He was. It should be. He was not okay with it. No one should be okay with it, Melanie. <laughs> it's a problem. I don't know. I don't know either about you at all. I'm fucking concerned. Well, they're staying. Since I've had where, them. Where, okay, where are you going to put them? Well, I'm hoping eventually when I get the Demon Loft redone into like a proper studio, because that is the plan. I have a goal this year to get a contractor in there to hook up some, you know, do like the electrical, let's get some drywall in there, some soundproofing so I can have, I need my own space. I'm tired of being in the laundry room. I'm in here all fucking day because I have five kids and a husband. Yeah. yeah. So like recording in here, I I try to zone it out. But if I get a little studio space, it's going to have all of my favorite things, including little cryptid haunted dolls. So once it's set up, like I have a vision. So I want to get all my creepy things, all my weird things, you know, to just have in my own space where it's just me. I have my dad's x-rays. I want to make a lamp out of it. So that will be my lighting. That is cool. It, I'm, I love the x-ray idea. It's so cool because it's got, um, he had degenerative disc disease. So like his x-rays just has all these screws in the neck. Oh my god, that's so metal. Yeah. Literally. Literally. Literally metal. <laughs> so my goal this year is to save up enough money to make my own spot in this place. I think you should definitely do that. That's not the laundry room. You deserve it. Although maybe when it comes to these dolls, you don't. <laughs> well, do you you want to jump into the bracket? Yeah, wow. There's a lot to unpack <laughs> this there's, week in the bracket. There's a lot. So this week, it's Shania's best friend has an affair with her husband and then proceeds to marry her best friend's now ex-husband. I know that's a lot. Versus Jersey Shore's Who Wrote the Note. Yes. Okay. Wow. So let's get into the Shania Twain situation first. I did not know about this, and I don't know how. <laughs> it seems like, this feels like something I very much should have known about. Like if you said Mutt Lang, I would have been like, "Oh yeah, Shania Twain's husband, or at least ex-husband." I don't know, but no, there's a lot more to it. So basically, um, Shania Twain, country kind of country pop singer, if anyone somehow doesn't know, met her husband Mutt Lang in towards the beginning of her career, and they got married like same year. 
and had a baby. And then she had this girl named Marie Ann, who was her assistant and her best friend. And she also had a husband. And let's see, how did they go about finding this out? Okay. So Shania starts thinking that Mutt is being shady as hell. And she goes and asks Marie Ann, don't you think my husband is acting strange? Yeah. And Marie Ann's like, no, she seems fine. And he seems fine. And if this story doesn't make you paranoid about every piece of advice your best friend's ever given you, I don't know what will. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh, that would never happen to me. Stay with us. We'll be right back. In space, no one can hear you scream. Unless you have a podcast. It's Space Castle! Join three nerds. I'm DT. I'm Alex. And I'm Seth. As they hurtle through space, debating movies, books, games, and answering your pop culture questions. All to maintain their own sanity. Space Castle. Your clubhouse and ours for all things nerdy. Available wherever pods are casted. And then you start thinking, and you're yeah. like thinking about every time your best friends reassured you, and I'm like, oh no. So, no, Mer. I mean, as you see coming, Marie Ann was fucking mutt, obviously. Yeah, and it's real dumb because it was like a major downgrade for her. Her husband was way better looking than this dude, um, Marie Ann's husband, whose name was very French, I believe. So we're going to just call him Fred. He did go by Fred. So Fred is the one who found out about the affair. He found a bunch of bullshit, receipts, negligee, all this stuff, and found out about the affair. And he was like, you guys have to tell Shania you're being sketchy as fuck. Well, Shania ends up finding out her friend fucking blocks her on the phone or whatever i think this was before like you would be blocking people on social media necessarily but her friend fucking blocks her shania is sending her emails going if you could see me crying and suffering maybe you would have pity find love somewhere else from someone else that isn't hurting two families so much wow yeah so it fucked up her vocal cords and it um did this thing where like the stress squeezes the voice box too much and it messes up your ability to sing and I'm really unclear on whether her career bounced back from that or not. Oh, well, um, she's a fucking legend, so obviously. But wait. Well, but I don't – I mean, is she still making music? Yes. Is she really? Are you sure? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Like, I feel like, like I just saw her on something. But was she singing? Or was she just there? I mean, I know she's alive. Let me see. I'm, I'm looking up her discography. She made something in 2017, but there was a big gap. There was a really, really, really big gap. Like a noticeable. Oh my God. I think there was like a 15 year gap in her career. Wow. I guess I didn't realize. Wow. Yeah. Hold on. Let me see if I can find this in order because there's like a bunch of greatest hits ones like kind of thrown in there. Yeah. She's only done five studio albums. That's crazy. It seems like more. She did one in 93 one in 95 one in 97 and then yeah this hadn't happened yet 
one in 2002 and then one in 2017. So there was a 15-year gap between albums for her. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was just, like, the sadness of this or her vocal cords. Like, I don't know. But it seems like her career took a major hit. But wait, there's more. The petty part was not just that Shania Twain's best friend was fucking her husband. Mm -hmm. Uh, Remember Fred, who found the affair? Oh, yeah. Her... Yeah, she uh, married him. Shania Twain did. (laughs) And I love it because, like, looks-wise, he's definitely a strong upgrade. It was a complete homie hop. Yeah, yeah, it was. And they're still married to this day. But you know what I didn't look up? Whether Mutt is still married to her. I gotta look that up real quick. (gasps) He didn't even marry her. Oh, damn. I don't know if... Let's see, is Mutt like still Shania Twain's best friend? Okay, they are reportedly still together as of 2020, but I don't think anyone like knows for sure. Wow. Okay. That's trippy. But Shania is definitely still married to Fred. So they, uh, yeah. Can you imagine the conversations they would have? That's yeah. So she said, I got to observe Fred going through the same thing I was, and I admired how he handled it. That is where I fell in love with him, because he was so exemplary in every way. Aww. What? What a thing. They were supporting each other through, like, one of the shittiest times ever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She said... Uh, Fred has been a true gift to me as a compassionate, understanding friend. An amazing love has blossomed from this precious friendship. Mm. So they live in Switzerland, apparently in a village. And uh, yeah, that's the story there. Now, the other one, I don't even fucking know how to summarize this one. Run! Oh, my God. Okay. Did you... Okay, so do you did you like follow this when it happened? Oh yeah. Okay. I would not normally say this, but do you feel like you can summarize it all because I don't feel like like I've been reading and reading and reading about this and like I told you before we started this I'm still kind of like what? She basically <laughs> just wanted to shoot the messenger. Okay. Okay, no, but like explain it to my mom. <laughs> Whenever I explain these, I explain it to my mom. God, that was because- a gazillion years ago. They basically i can't even remember if it was snooki or jay wow one of them typed up a, it was both their ideas one of them typed up a letter basically saying what a shitbag ron was i don't know if there was like cheating rumors i think there might have been cheating rumors on there oh yeah there were definitely cheating rumors i'll read the note in a minute and they I'm just gave wondering it to, if you can provide any context other than that well instead of getting pissed at ron she got pissed at someone left an anonymous note okay it was a very toxic relationship it shows it shows (laughs) so let me hold on let me pull up like a very brief explainer i don't i wish i didn't have this many sidebars right now (laughs) but let me pull up a brief explainer because i am not good at this oh sammy sweetheart she's living her best life now who oh is she See, I don't know anything about, like, the Jersey Shore world. Like, not even a little. Oh, she left Jersey Shore and is just happy. Okay. So, this was a Jenny and Snooky situation, I think, right? Yeah. Does it sound right? Okay. And Jay, wow. Yes. And 
old boy was cheating around all the time. And she wrote this dude a note. No, she wrote my- it to his girlfriend. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, well, I meant she wrote a note about this dude, but I can't talk. That's why I'm a podcaster. <laughs> I recommend it if you can't talk. I My favorite thing that I found in the course of researching this was quite accidental, which was that someone had made a wall tapestry that was just this note, just on a white background in its original font. <laughs> As a wall tapestry. And that, that is the kind of thing. That is the kind of ridiculous meta inside joke that I just fucking live for. <laughs> so it said, Sam, the first night at bed when you left, Ron made out with two girls and put his head in between a cocktail waitress's breast. Also was grinding with multiple fat women. <laughs> multiple. Okay. So Ron has a type. When you left crying at clutch, Ron was holding hands and dancing with a female and took down her number. Multiple people in the house know. Therefore, you should know the truth. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I respect it. Minus the body shaming. Yes, minus the body. I mean, is it? Is it? I assume it is surely meant to be body shaming, but like it is technically just a statement of fact. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely meant as body shaming, though. It's definitely meant as body shaming. Um, But I mean, obviously, those multiple fat women could get it. They all got Ron. (laughs) Wow. I I don't I don't even know how the fuck. (laughs) I don't even know. I have to find this tapestry now. Uh, Okay, hold on. Let me find it for you. It's it's beautiful. I'll put it in my new podcast room when I build it. Please do. Okay, I'm sending it. Oh my gosh, I need this. (laughs) It's just a fucking whole ass tapestry. It is completely worth the $50 price tag. There there might be more out there. You may be able to bargain shop. Hey, I have a cricket. I'll just make one. Oh shit, that's true. You could put that on anything. You could put that on your bedspread. Cody would be like, what the fuck? But he wouldn't be as upset as he was about the No, he wouldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, wow. I think that I kind of have to go with the Shania Twain situation. And I will admit that a little bit of it is just because I'm more familiar with the people involved. So I feel like I have more of a handle on the context. Right. But also, I love that she just fucking upgraded with the shadiest person. Not that not that Fred was shady. You know what I mean? Right. She upgraded in the shadiest way she possibly could. And you know, living well is the best revenge, and it would appear that they are still fucking living well. <laughs> All right. Shania wins so, this week. I mean, we're going to just kind of slide by the fact that also, technically, I guess, Mutt and her are living well. Fuck that. That's not That's not, That's not. not the point here. No. I don't. Uh, no. no. Go Shania. Gonna, Shania wins this week. We're going to say they're unhappy. We're going to say they're unhappy. But I think that the... Um, I think the development of her love with Fred sounds just beautiful. I like it. Shania wins this week. Shania wins. I mean, Shania always wins. I need to put more Shania on my playlist, honestly. I gotta write that down. Hold on. (laughs) All right. Shall we get into it? Let's do it. All right. So somebody in the Horrible Ghouls group asked if I would be, well, we would be doing anything for Pride Month. Happy Pride! Happy Pride! And, um... 
I wanted to, but I was not sure what to do. And um, so they posted some links and I went down some rabbit holes and got kind of a concept for what I wanted to do. As usual, it kind of went in a whole other direction. Um, my plan was to do the same format as uh, Nine Heroes and Five Heroes last March, which I really enjoyed doing. I wanted to do something similar this year, but... You know, my life was a disaster this year. and I didn't want to not do it justice. So I kind of set that out this time. But um, we are going to revisit that now with some LGBTQ heroes. And this one I started doing and it was one of those where I wanted to have a lot of short ones and I ended up with a couple bigger ones instead. Um, Very, very likely that I will be part twoing this and doing more smaller ones, but that's just not really the direction that we went this time. So that we we're going to have um, two people with some commonalities and uh, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. So we're going to start with a guy with the very fun name of Oliver Sipple. Oh, I love it. I know something about Sipple is like just delightful to me. Like it makes me think of like dimple, supple, nipple, like all of it. <laughs> All good words. It's a bouncy word. I like it. It is a bouncy word. Sipple. Oliver Sipple. It's not really a bouncy story, though. Um, so Oliver was born around the time of the auto boom in Detroit to a huge family. I think there were like eight kids, I think I saw somewhere. He grew up and joined the Marines, and then he got deployed to Vietnam for two tours of duty where he was injured in the line of duty and hospitalized for like over a year oh wow yeah um i know there was shrapnel involved other than that i don't know the exact nature of his injuries but i also know that he had some pretty significant ptsd they weren't calling it ptsd then but he he had some stuff going on so when he was discharged and attempting to live his life again, Oliver was a politically active gay man who marched in protests and had been able to meet Harvey Milk in New York City and um, join his political campaign, actually. They became friends and they even had some overlap in their dating circles, which I say that like it's like really radical. <laughs> uh, if you are a gay in the same geographical location. I guess I should probably take that moment to clarify that I myself am a gay. I don't know if I've ever really said that. Um, I know I've referred to female exes before, but I'm not sure. It's fucking Pride Month, so I'm going to have to address this at some point in all these discussions or it's just going to be weird. I would more or less consider myself a lesbian. My husband was the only um, man that I've ever had a long-term relationship with. Um, and I would not be looking for any men in the future. Yeah. So, hello. I'm gay too, guys, just so <laughs> you know. I know that I have talked to a few people about um, various things where this has come up. So, a few people already know. I think it's been mentioned in the group. I think it's been implied on the podcast. But, like, I am super single now. and uh, Ready to mingle. Ready. <laughs> Uh, we'll see about that. Uh, super single. We will. We'll see on the mingling. And uh, I, yeah, you, y'all aren't going to hear about any boyfriends henceforth. Trust and believe. <laughs> and it's Pride Month, so and there is a lot of discussion on coming out and timing and um, privacy and autonomy and that topic in the story. So 
it feels relevant. And also, I can't really make jokes about gays in their incestuous dating circles without acknowledging I myself am one. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so Oliver was well known in the community, but he didn't want to cross that bridge with his family. Um, for them, his identity was a need to know thing, and they did not need to know. He moved to San Francisco, where he lived with a man who was in the Navy who I take to be his partner, but I guess I don't know that for absolutely sure that it was his partner. I had some trouble digging up clarity on that, probably for a reason. And just kind of making a life for himself, you know, despite his ongoing struggles resulting from his war injuries. So in 1975, uh, five years after he was hurt in Vietnam, he took a walk in San Francisco one day. And he saw a crowd forming outside the St. Francis Hotel, and he stopped to see what was going on. So it turned out that President uh, Gerald Ford was there, and he would be leaving. I don't think he was scheduled to speak or anything, but I think that people um, knew he was going to be coming out soon, so they were all just gathered. gathered there to see it, which seems a little crazy to me. I don't know. I, I guess that's normal, but... This is how Oliver found himself in a crowd of 3,000 people standing just behind a woman named Sarah as President Ford stepped out of the St. Francis Hotel. It had to have been an unsettling moment for President Ford because just three weeks before that, one of Charles Manson's most notorious followers, Squeaky, had fired at him from point blank range. But security, I mean, obviously she missed, well, I don't know if she missed her gun jammed or what, this isn't about that, but he had just had an attempt on his life made three weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so security was very heavily present. As the crowd grew during those few hours leading up to the president's departure, Oliver was pressed so close to that woman, Sarah, that he, she thought he was being inappropriate and she turned around and slapped him across the face. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, when she did, she realized that he was really just being moved by the tight crowd. There was nothing of the sort going on. She was the one with bad intentions, actually. Uh-oh. <laughs> just not toward Oliver. Sarah had – she had gotten some political beliefs. I am – it is weirdly hard to find what political beliefs those might have been, but she had been radicalized. And I'm I'm just not going to make any kind of commentary on whether um, those – I mean, it's never an excuse for what she did, but I, I'm unclear on whether – there's how do I put this? I know. Any kind yeah. of good reason? Like, but there's no good reason, but you know what I mean. Right. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm just not real sure where she stood on anything, but at the same time, I feel like I'm implying that maybe – it was fine to potentially assassinate the president, which is not what I'm saying. Just to be clear, don't cancel me, please. So she had four kids and had just dropped one of her kids off somewhere that morning and ran some fucking errands and then came to this thing and bought a gun on the way. And at a distance of 40 feet, Sarah pulled out a 38 caliber revolver and fired at the president. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Very nearly hitting him and getting the wall instead. Obviously, everybody went nuts, you know, shots fired. In a huge so crowd. In a huge crowd. Um, Sarah had not intended to have to fire more than once, so this kind of threw her for a loop, but she didn't come to miss, so she lifted her gun to shoot again. And her aim wasn't half-fucking bad, and it was really just her unfamiliarity with the gun that was the reason that she missed it all. And, I mean, she just had that recent muscle memory of her last barely missed shot, so she should be able to correct the aim pretty well this time, because she missed it by very little. Um, but Oliver also 
wasn't about to miss right now. So he threw himself at Sarah, grabbing for her gun. As he did, it fired, hitting a 42-year-old taxi driver named John, who would survive. Um, Oliver's intervention bought enough time for the Secret Service to tackle Sarah to the ground and disarm her. Um, Oliver was questioned at the hotel, but of course, like he turned out to have no involvement in whatever bullshit Sarah was on. He's like, so, I just got smacked. Yes, yeah. He and he was he was pretty fucked up. I um, read a transcript of a Radio Lab interview, and um, considering that he was a Vietnam vet who had not expected to see combat that day, he was shaking too hard to light a cigarette, and he was just really, really upset, really, really fucked up by this. So Sarah was arrested and the president wasn't shot, but the media went nuts. They wanted to talk to Oliver. Um, obviously, you know, they wanted interviews. It's reasonable enough. Oliver had successfully separated certain spheres of his life and he had no interest in stepping into the spotlight where they could potentially converge in that way. Right. He was photographed when it happened, and when he got home, there were reporters waiting outside his apartment. He answered a couple questions, and when he was asked why he did what he did, he said, I'm a coward. I don't know why I did it. It was the thing to do at the time. Oh. Yeah. He went out of his way to ask for privacy and explain why that was so important to him. And it might have worked if it wasn't for two unhelpful people who should have fucking known better. Um, one was a gay activist who read the who led the Lavender Panthers, and the other was Harvey Milk himself. Oh my gosh, who, are they going to exploit him? Uh, yeah, that that's probably a good a good term for it. So the logic of this, if you want to call it that, was that it was simply too good of a PR moment for gayness to pass up. This was a gay Marine jumping in to save the president, which is nothing like, you know, the prevailing stereotypes of gay men as somehow both weak and emasculated, but also predatory at the same time. Um, And Harvey Milk was a huge advocate for coming out as a kind of radical action, um, which comes up a lot in... A lot of stories that I researched and just decided they didn't quite fit in with the theme that I'm going with here. Um, But, okay, there was one guy that I was going to cover and I just, I don't know, there was too much to unpack and it wasn't quite relevant enough to this. Um, But his name was, I have no clue how you pronounce this, Bayard Rustin. And very fascinating guy and I would highly recommend that you look into him if you're just interested in this kind of thing. Um, He was... A civil rights activist in the oof, 80s and earlier. And um, he was very behind the scenes influential in like Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches and a lot of very important civil rights moments. But he was gay. So he tended to be behind the scenes. But like he was a fucking powerhouse. He got a lot of stuff done. And there was a quote that I do get out your bingo boards and mark down me saying I was not going to cover this and I deleted all my research on it, but now I'm going to cover it from memory. <laughs> it's fine. It's just what I do. So he, um, he had said he had an anecdote about um, he was involved in a bus demonstration and he was asked to go to the back of the bus and there was a white child watching 
And he realized that if he did, I'm very much paraphrasing here, and I hope I'm not fucking it up, but he realized that if he did, he would basically be kind of sending the message that black people didn't mind going to the back of the bus and didn't mind that kind of treatment. Little kids watch fucking everything. Yes. And he was like, you know, he knew that there was a bit of a sentiment, which is hard to imagine there being the sentiment now, but there was that people were just like, why are you so open arms about this? Like black people don't mind. It's fine. It's how they live. It's what they're used to. It's how they're comfortable. You need to calm down. Um, and he realized that if he just, you know, went with it and there's this child watching and I mean, you know, everyone in a larger way watching, um, that it was really sending a message that that was okay. And he didn't really mind. So he refused. And in that moment, apparently he also realized that it was kind of the same thing as far as coming out that you just, you need to because it, it, you just, you can't make strides as an invisible demographic right so yeah it, it i mean i'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the idea of coming out as kind of a, a radical necessary political action and it's it's an interesting topic that i would just love to have deep discussions with somebody about i don't know um, it's hard when time and, is so limited yeah I, I don't know i just feel like i want to talk about that for a while but like this is probably not really the place um, but it is a very interesting concept to me. But, you know, as important as a concept as that may be, the idea that liberation isn't possible unless more people come out, which is true, you fucking have to have personal choice and consent. Yes, always. In terms of whether or when or if or how to come out. And there were some people involved in the gay liberation movement at the time who were just not thinking in that direction, unfortunately. Oliver received a letter from the president that said, I want you to know how much I appreciated your selfless actions last Monday. The events were a shock to us all, but you acted quickly and without fear for your own safety. By doing so, you helped avert danger to me and to others in the crowd. You have my heartfelt appreciation. So Harvey Milk felt like the gratitude was underwhelming. Um, he was, you know, a personal friend, fellow advocate. I'm not quite sure the nature of their relationship. I believe they were friends. Um, he was, you know, a personal friend of Oliver's. So I'm not sure if his concept of the gratitude kind of came from the media or from what he'd personally heard from Oliver. Um, but it's very possible that the president was being intentionally low key about it out of respect for Oliver's privacy, because I think that it was kind of privately known among certain circles and certain groups of reporters. Initially, the president may have known this um, and may have decided to not call attention to him. But Harvey Milk wasn't having it. So he and the other guy had leaked this information to a reporter. Uh, Oliver was already, you know, all over the news and everything. And they sent some stuff to a gossip reporter and said, hey, you know, this Marine who did this is gay, by the way. Oh, so yeah. Days after the event, the news broke, including Oliver's name and identity as a gay man. And he and his stunned family that he was now outed to were swarmed by reporters. Um, and as gay advocacy groups pushed for more and more public gratitude, Oliver was forced to take refuge in a friend's apartment and he was cut off by his mother and pretty much disowned by his family. 
Um, his mom told him she never wanted to speak to him again. And Oliver's dad told Oliver's brother to forget that he had a brother. Fuck. Uh, he was very fucking upset. Very fucking upset. He wrote a letter back to the president that said, Dear Mr. President, thank you for taking the time to write to me. In view of some of the events since the unfortunate attempt on your life on Monday, September 22nd, I really appreciate your publicly thanking me. As you probably know, there have been a number of stories concerning my personal sexual orientation in the news media. These stories have caused great anguish to my parents and to the rest of my family, I am sure. My mother hung up on me when I first called her after these stories began to be published. I know you are concerned with very many matters which are too important and pressing for you to be concerned with the details of my private life. However, the unexpected and glaring publicity which has been given to my private life has very seriously disrupted my family relationships. Mr. President, it is a very hard thing to have your mother and family not want to have any contact with you. Mm-hmm. I know that your schedule is heavily occupied, but I respectfully request that you take the time to see my family or at least call my family. The telephone number is and gave the number. I love my family and I do not want to be separated from their love and companionship. Your help will be gratefully appreciated. Respectfully, Oliver W. Sipple. That's so fucking sad. Yeah. On multiple levels. Yeah. it That is just so fucking sad. So Oliver, as far as anyone knows... The president didn't call, which, you know, that's that I'm mixed on that because it's so fucking devastating to me that he reached out for some kind of intercession after he'd saved this man's life and didn't get it. Um, I mean, I could understand being like, I, yeah, I'm not getting mixed up in that as, you know, a major public figure like the fucking president, but it's, it's so upsetting. Oliver sued the reporter who outed him for $15 million. But it, uh, for invasion of privacy, but it was dismissed after nine years on the ground. Nine years. Nine. He ground, fought that for nine, nine years. He fought that for nine years on the grounds that Oliver, quote, had become news and his homosexuality was relevant to that news, which, in my opinion, is a really fucking alarming precedent to set. That is um, and th- super. This, icky. Is, this case is taught in like journalism classes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's like, where does that end? Like, is any piece of personal information that makes a person in a news story more interesting fair game? No, absolutely not. If it's not relevant to the fact that this guy was there, he stopped this woman, the president didn't get shot. I mean, yeah, sure, it's going to sell more papers. But I don't understand what what his sexuality has. Like, he's news, but like, your sexuality doesn't like completely define you. No, no. I mean, and it has really nothing to do with the story. I mean, I I get that it is a good publicity moment if he consents to that. But as far as the story itself goes, it's completely fucking irrelevant. I think this we covered this a little bit in your episode of Nine Heroes with the kid that took the bus. And then they started mm-hmm. coming out about like just the other oh, stuff. He did. Yes, the kid in Katrina. And it's yes. like it's unfucking necessary yeah i mean that's a huge problem with just racially fucking biased and charged and fucked up things um with news reporting for sure so unfortunately oliver's life went completely to hell from here on out um i don't know really how much it was or wasn't because of what happened when his mom died he wasn't allowed at her funeral he was asked by a reporter what he wanted to happen next shortly after the event and he said 
I don't know. I'm just, I'm very shook up. I may even have to go see a doctor over this. I'm very emotionally shook up and I just, I'm feeling very sorry for my family too. It's awful. It's just awful. I've got nothing more to say. Wow. Yeah. His physical and mental health went very much downhill and he spiraled into alcoholism and told his friends that he wished he'd never done what he did that day. He was found in his apartment 10 days after his death at the age of 47 in 1989. I'm not totally sure what did that. I didn't get the impression that it was, you know, um, but I don't know. I don't know if anyone knows. Um, well, it wasn't old Ford, age. That's for fucking sure. It certainly wasn't. No. Um, President Ford sent a letter reading, Mrs. Ford and I express our deepest sympathy in this time of sorrow involving your friend's passing, which was displayed in a local gay dive bar for a while. Um, more on that later, more on dive bars later. Uh, Sarah also, <laughs> weirdly, um, she served 32 years before being released on parole. And she would later do an interview with Radiolab at 87 years old. She's still alive in 92 now, um, acknowledging that Oliver, quote, paid dearly for stopping her. Wow. Yeah. And during her sentencing, she like, was, was that like yet. an accountability thing? Like, honestly, I don't know, because I read the entire transcript and she is basically only in the beginning of it. And I think somebody asked her like what her motivations were. And she was like, this interview isn't about me. It's about Oliver. And then she was hardly ever in it for the rest of it. And I'm like, why was she there at all? Right. Um, I don't know. I guess they probably just felt like they could land an interview with her and were like, yes, we're doing this. That's clickbaity. Um, it is clickbaity. I don't know enough about the context to talk shit necessarily but i'm not sure what exactly i don't know it was weird um but she said he paid dearly during her sentencing um she was extraordinarily unapologetic and said that she basically only missed only regretted that she had missed because it didn't make it worth it to fuck up her life and she also escaped from prison a few years later and was caught um, and said that if she knew she was going to get caught, she would have gone and gotten a burger first. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but she's like 92 now. And uh, now she regrets it, apparently. Oh, wow. Yikes. Yeah. So that was the sad story, sad but heroic story of Oliver Sipple. Do you want another sad but heroic story? I don't know if my heart can handle it, but it's my well, job. Your heart's going to handle it. It is your job. That People, we don't ever talk about the fact that we can't content warning each no. other. Because <laughs> sometimes you cover shit and I'm like, I would skip this episode if I was a listener. <laughs> but I can't. Okay. So um, you want to talk about something huge? Yes. That we uh, have talked about very little and I don't really know why this is the week I decided I was going to go here. <laughs> you guys have a lot of stuff on your plate. Uh, Let's go big. I do. Fuck it. Um, so where were you on 9-11? Oh, <gasps> I am not unequivocally not covering 9-11. I'm covering a tiny, 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 tiny little sliver of it. I was in my bed. My mom called me. Okay. Um, How old were you? 21. Okay. That night was actually one of my good friend's 21st birthday. Oh, wow. And we went to the waterfront park in Louisville, and that's when all planes were down. There was, like, the airspace was completely open nationwide, and uh, everything was closed. 
Um, I actually had work today, uh, work that day, um, at the mall, but the mall closed early, which, I mean, it was, it was weird that it was even opened in the first place. Um, but we played kickball under the stars when there's normally hundreds of planes flying over. It was really weird. Oh gosh. That's so surreal. It was a weird fucking day, night, week, months. Yeah. That's where were you? Uh, mine's much more boring than that. Um, I have lived in Indiana for almost all my life, but that year for a period of less than a year, um, my mom and I lived in Michigan with my grandparents. And so I was 13. Um, I was homeschooled. So I was at home alone. And um, my grandmother worked pretty close. Um, and I was very sheltered at the time. I did not understand what was going on on any fucking level like not even slightly and um i remember seeing the news coverage i i don't remember feeling a lot other than just kind of this awareness that there was so much that i don't know right like i'd never heard the word terrorism before that day ever I, it was a completely new concept entirely i think me. it was for a lot of people you know, do you? Well, I just, as Americans, we were very um, self-focused, self-centered. You know, we just, yeah, um, unaware. I don't know. I just, I just remembered it like it being. I had this feeling like, why is everyone sh- so shocked that this happened? Really? Yeah. Like, I don't. I don't know. It felt, I don't know if it's just maybe my background and like my family history and stuff like that, but it really felt like it was a, it was bound to happen type deal. Wow. See, I just, I honestly, I'm not sure that I really had any awareness of the fact that America had enemies at that time. Yeah. Like, I I don't think, I just had no framework for it. I was not around people who were... Um, very politically engaged or, you know, vocal about that at all. Um, I didn't watch the news. I wasn't in school. Um, I just, it, I had no, no context whatsoever for any of this. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this on the podcast before the thing with the corner store. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a little relevant to this. The only thing that really emotionally struck me at the time was that we had um, this corner store and, you know, we had a very large Middle Eastern population in the area. A lot of parts of, you know, around Detroit tend to. And um, there was a corner store owned by some Middle Eastern men. I don't know their exact nationality at the corner. And my grandmother sent me down to the corner to buy, I think, milk like that night. It it could have been the next day. It was very soon after. And um, there was a Middle Eastern guy at a cash register and there was a white guy at a cash register. And the white guy, um, his line was out the door and the other guy's was empty. And I had some sense that it was related to this, but I was just baffled by that. Yeah. It just, I mean, I was there all the time. I'd talked to that guy before. He was really nice to me. And I was just like, whatever is going on that would do this like it's that's not right that can't be right because i know i mean i don't know him at all but like 
this is a nice guy. Whatever has all these people convinced that he's not like there's a fucking misunderstanding. Right. Um, so I got in his line. I also remember from that corner store a card that I read when I was about 13 and it had a picture of a balloon and it said, um, virginity is like a balloon. All it takes is one prick and it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> I was learning Isn't a lot it funny year. how memories work? Yep. <laughs> Yup. Also, the year I found my grandfather's porn in his garage, it's fine. Um, so that always kind of makes me think about that um quote about one you know a million dead people is a statistic, one dead person's a tragedy, right? And uh, or something very loosely. And nine eleven for me was too big to comprehend. It was just I didn't have the framework. There were so many people that it 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 was hard to feel anything about it and that sounds bad but i don't know i mean that was you know we all have our right. own conception of 9-11 that was mine so the point that that changed for me other than the corner store experience because i just kind of still didn't really have much framework for a while after that but the point that that changed uh for me was 2004 when i was 16 and uh, melissa etheridge's album lucky came out and I was a young lesbian, huge Melissa Etheridge stan. And that album has a song called Tuesday Morning on it. I don't know how well known that song necessarily is, but it fucks me up every single time that I listen to it. And that was the time that it first ever felt personal to me. Right. Because it is a song about um, Mark Bingham, who was on uh, United Airlines Flight 93. And it is such a powerful song about him. And I I listen to it today and I got goosebumps all over my body, um, which happens every time I listen to it. And I mean, I've never really felt all that connected to 9-11. You know, I lived really far from it. I had no framework for it. I didn't know anyone remotely connected to it. And I had had a bunch of family members die like that week. Like we had three different relatives die the week leading up to 9-11. Um, so I just kind of had other shit going on right then. Um, but this song and Mark Bingham's story was the moment that it became personal to me. And, you know, it's just kind of like another sidebar about this is just how I don't know if everyone realizes how meaningful, happy adult LGBTQ role models are to children. Right. When I was a kid, my mom had, well, not a kid, like a, a young teen. My mom had a boyfriend who was a fucking degenerate. Sorry, mom, you know who I'm talking about. And he had a gay sister and um, she was, I guess it wouldn't have been married then. It wasn't legal, but she was, you know, in a, in a partnership with her wife and they were raising teenage kids and had like a nice house and everything. And I was just like, holy shit. Like I was obsessed with them. I just wanted to watch them exist. Yeah. Like, and it wasn't like, I didn't have any kind of crush on either one of them or anything like that. It was just like, you're just like doing it. You're just, you're just like living a life. And I, I just wanted to take notes. I just wanted to watch this. Right. <laughs> I was so fascinated. And, um, you know, I think that that's a little bit less so now to the younger community in a lot of places because it's so, much more accepted than it was then. And it, um, you know, they have such an amount of online support that they have access to. But, you know, to all of the like 50 and 60 year old gay and lesbian and transgender people among us right now, let me tell you, there are some 
30, 20, 40 something queer people who you saved their lives. I guarantee you that. A hundred percent. And store. And I mean, absolutely without a fucking doubt that still happens for young people. I think it's, um, you know, there are more sources of support and thank God because of some of these fights, there are somewhat fewer sources of support needed. That's, that's the point. That's the goal. But, it, you know, I, I know a lot of people who have who are my age or you know, a little older, or younger, who have a similar story. And the concept of Mark Bingham was part of this for me, too. And, you know, obviously, I was a, a little more moved by stories about adult lesbians. But all, all this to say that when I first heard Tuesday morning in the context of my little baby lesbian music habits, um, that was when this all became personal to me for the first time. And so we're going to talk very briefly about Mark Bingham, because um, I really, I thought like, I'm just going to do United Airlines Flight 93 in the context of kind of loosely framed through Mark Bingham. And the more I dug, the more I was like, even that is too big to even kind of be part of a compilation like that deserves its own episode. So I I don't want to um, get very super deeply into the flight. Um, because I still want to cover it and I don't want to just, you know, so we're just going to kind of briefly go over that because it felt like one of your, uh, bracket pairings kind of, Yeah. <laughs> because we've got two, um, two heroic gay men in a, you know, it, it, who were just used as a certain kind of example. This one, much less problematic. I don't know that it, his, um, media perception is problematic at all, but they just felt like they went together. Right. So I just kind of wanted to pair these. So Oliver Sipple's story unfolded when Mark Bingham was five years old, but there would be, like I said, some significant parallels. Mark was born in Arizona in 1970. He was an only child. His parents divorced when he was two. I can't. I'm reading between the lines here. I don't think his dad was really in his life. It doesn't seem like um, he was basically vlogging before it was cool. He was <laughs> building his videography skills in his teen years, making these like personal videos about his life. I don't mean like that. That sounded dirty. I don't mean it like that at all. Um, he got into rugby and was probably benefited from being tall as fuck. He was six, four. Wow. And yeah, and he played that throughout high school and college where he was also in a fraternity. And I mean, he was just ridiculously handsome, like just the just like Oliver. He was just this wholesome, all-American guy. You know, he had like a very, um, very nice beard. It was like one of those things where it's like a little less than a beard, but more than scruff. And it's just like very neatly trimmed. Like a goatee? No, like a beard, but as far as length, like more than scruff, less than beard. Okay. It was just that, like, you know, like short beard. Um, Very good look. And, you know, wonderful smile. Just a very, very handsome all-American guy who was also gay during a time when gay men were just usually not perceived that way. Probably less so than they were for Oliver, you know, were the negative perceptions. But it was still 2001. There, There were quite a few. He was notoriously brave and adventurous. He had fought off two men who jumped him and walked away with a black eye. He had gotten gored by a bull in Spain. Jeez. Uh-huh. And uh loved to show off the scar from that. He came out to his family after college, and he set about building a career in public relations that took him to New York City for part of the time. How does his and family, I, was it a better I th- situation? I think they were fine. Yeah, no, I think they were fine. Um, he had a partner named Paul that he had been with for six years. Um, and this just 
I mean, I was fucking riveted by people like this as a teenager. Because it was just like, you are just, you went to college, you started a career, like you're not on the fucking fringes of society, you have a partner, you are living in the light, just living your life, and that is an option. And I mean, it just, I was fucking riveted by anything of the (laughs) sort. So Mark was going to be one of his frat brothers ushers in California, which is why he booked tickets on United Airlines Flight 93. Uh, departing New Jersey and headed for San Francisco early on the morning of September 11th, 2001. He might have booked them a little too early for his own preferences because he overslept and just barely made his 740 flight. He was the last passenger to board the doomed plane. Minutes. This story really messes me up. I don't know why. Um, minutes into the flight, the first plane hit the Twin Towers, but the passengers aboard Flight 93 couldn't have known that. Um, they wouldn't have known when the second plane hit either minutes after that. Their first sign that something was wrong wouldn't come until 43 minutes into their flight when the pilots got an electronic warning that the cockpit had been intruded. I can't phrase it any better than good old Wikipedia did. I I read this and I read it in a bunch of other places and there's just it it's such a simple and horrifying statement. I there's no it just has to be quoted. Which was um quote, three minutes later Cleveland controllers could hear screams over the cockpit's open microphone. <sighs> Shortly after that, the hijackers announced over the intercom to the entire plane, keep remaining sitting, we have a bomb on board, and turn the plane around. Uh, Some passengers were able to call their families from the plane, and they must have thought they were the ones calling with the bad news. So imagine when they reached their families and found out what the whole world was finding out together, that the United States was under attack. Yeah. And two planes had already been flown into the World Trade Center, and now they're on a hijacked plane. So, yeah, I mean, you think you're making this call to tell your family, holy shit, you're not going to believe this. And they're like, well, holy shit, you're not going to believe this. Yeah. Likely the target, and I really feel like Flight 93 is not, it, it kind of gets overshadowed yeah. in when we talk about 9-11. So I really, really just want to cover the whole thing because there is, I mean, I'm I'm touching on a hundredth of the information about this. The likely target was either the White House or the Capitol building, as I'm sure we all know. When the hijackers turned the plane around and the word spread about the other planes, the passengers knew exactly what was coming. So Mark and three other men, Todd, Jeremy, and uh, Mark's seatmate, Tom, decided that if they were going down, they were going down fighting. All four men were athletes. All four men were, um, you know, successful businessmen. They were get stuff done kind of dudes with physical strength. Um, They called their families. They talked to the FBI on the phone, and they told them this. And that... I feel like that has to be such a shift from the whole like following directions vibe on a plane. Right. <laughs> you know, like you you were supposed to, I mean, especially post 9-11, but even then, I mean, you were supposed to do exactly what the fuck you're supposed to do. But they call their families in the FBI and they tell them, this is what we're doing. We have a plan. We're going to, we're going to do this. I mean, you can't. There's not a policy or an operation <laughs> procedure for something like this. So sometimes, sometimes, well, you just have to follow your instincts yeah. in situations yeah. like this. I mean, this. good for them. But, 
It's just, it's hard to imagine, maybe I'm just a little bit too timid. It's just hard to imagine getting on the phone with these people and saying, we're about to attempt to take control of an airplane. Right. And uh, that's what's happening. So Mark reached his aunt and told her, this is Mark. I want to let you guys know that I love you in case I don't see you again. I'm on United Airlines Flight 93. It is being hijacked. Goosebumps every time I read that. His mom was actually a former flight attendant with the same airline. And she was able to call him back. And I mean, you know, this is lucky because there there was not going to be a lot of phone service for long. Right. I don't think at this point. Um, she called him and she said, Mark, this is your mom. The news is that it's been hijacked by terrorists. They are planning to probably use the plane as a target to hit some site on the ground. I would say go ahead and do everything you can to overpower them because they are hellbent. Try to call me back if you can. <sighs> can you fucking imagine? No. Can you fucking imagine? I mean, how do you call your child or anyone and just tell them this is what you need to do? But it it seems like that is kind of what already he was going to do. Um, she called back again and she said, quote, Mark, apparently it's terrorists and they are hellbent on crashing the aircraft. So if you can try to take over the aircraft, there doesn't seem to be much plan to land the aircraft normally. So I guess your best bet would be to try to take it over if you can or tell the other passengers. There is one flight that they say is headed towards San Francisco. It might be yours. So uh, if you can group some people and perhaps do the best you can to get control of it. I love you, sweetie. Good luck. Bye bye. I think it speaks. I, I have chills right now. Um, yeah. I think it speaks volumes because she's not willy nilly just calling him and being like, do this. Like she's believes he can do this. Yeah. Yeah. She has to have so much confidence in him and everyone, everyone that knew him talked about how this would just be such a given for him. This is something he, there's no, no one questions that this is what he would do. Right. And I mean, what a guy <laughs> to have that kind of reputation. It's a whole ass to, personality trait. It's a whole ass personality trait. And to have somebody that your your mother is going to call you and say, hey, take control of it. And his mom's a fucking flight attendant. So she knows shit. Mm-hmm. It just. it Wow. It's 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 intense. Every part of that story just fucking trips me up. So a group of passengers and crew voted on a plan, which I also think is really neat how people just like form little fucking democracies yeah. <laughs> in these crazy situations. It's it's wild to me. The passengers stormed the cockpit fighting to get the door open. There is debate about whether uh, they did manage to get the door open or not. Um, it's not completely clear. Some people think that they got in and maybe killed one of the hijackers and, uh, other people think, um, I think that the official official think is that maybe they just knew that the passengers were about to breach the cockpit. So they did what they did. Um, a passenger yelled and was recorded saying in the cockpit, if we don't, we'll die. But we all know they would die anyway. The hijackers had been attempting to tip the plane enough to knock the passengers off balance. 
and, you know, thwart what they had going on that seemed to have failed. So they did um, hurdle that Boeing 757 into an empty field, killing everyone aboard. And I just, I, I really, I want to be brief with that because there is so much to that story and the other people who made that attempt also heroes. deserve to have their stories told absolute fucking heroes. Um, and there are so many fucking goosebump giving absolutely devastating stories about the conversations people had with their families. And I want to tell all those stories um, maybe soon, but I've, I've never been sure how I want to approach nine 11. And I think that it's just going to come out in smaller episodes periodically. Um, but I do think that covering the full story of flight 93 is probably going to be impossible. Well, flight 93, I think that we can cover pretty thoroughly covering nine 11. I mean, what the fuck Right, you could have had started a podcast when it happened and it would still be going on and you would not be out of content at all. That will never be able to be fully covered. I do want to cover more of it, but I think that my first, like truly just nine 11, not, you know, touched on it somewhere episode uh, will probably be the full story of United Airlines flight 93. Um, but I did just want to kind of highlight Mark's story because it felt kind of connected to Oliver's and uh and I just think it it is important, you know. Obviously the people in Oliver's story went about things horribly wrong and uh Mark was fortunate enough to be able to safely be out and had come out on his own terms. And, you know, that's a better example of a gay PR moment. Right. Is uh, you know, you've got this guy who is what certain people would like to think of which is problematic as fuck on its own you know you you it's the whole mask for mask thing that's a whole other story but that's problematic but i get it from a news perspective and i i get it from an activism perspective and uh and i just felt like those two stories kind of made a good two sides of a coin thing right um as far as PR and public image and perception and heroism in the LGBTQ community, which is, of course, there's a lot of it, and uh, consent and all that. So wow. that is my very abbreviated version of Flight 93. There is so much more. This was excellent. You think? Yes. Hell yes. I've had, I've had an intense week, and uh, I have not... Um, I've been worried that this might be a disorganized episode. No, you, you know, with still delivered and everything else I've done this week. Yeah, so I'm thinking in September I will probably cover the full story of Flight 93. I might want to just start working on that now. Yeah. Wow, that so. was excellent. Yeah, thank you. I hope so. I hope it was okay. I'm gonna need some disaster relief. <laughs> We finally fixed our fence. Well, Cody finished fixing our fence from the oh, hurricane. Like very literal disaster relief. Yes. <laughs> and good. The fence is a big, big thing for us because when we moved here, it was just like the back of our home was open to sugarcane. Um, but we have a big, fat fur baby who likes to run around and I can't really let him do that because he likes to meet people. Um, so we had that, the fence like put in and then the hurricane hit 
our brand new fence. Ugh, um, that's rough. But we finally have it replaced. Our dog can run around. Not so much right now because he just had surgery. But he doesn't have to be be like connected to me. Like, yeah, he can have his own space. That's whiskey's disaster relief. Yeah, <laughs> didn't know we were doing our pets disaster <laughs> relief, Melanie. <laughs> I think he's just been so used to it, though, because he's been following me around all day. And I'm like, you can go out like you do not need my supervision anymore. Run free That's whiskey. Cute. That's cute. So, yes, my, dis- happy for my disaster relief and whiskeys is we have an enclosed <laughs> fence. Finally. That is wonderful. And that is very um, on theme. That is actual disaster relief. <laughs> What's yours? Um, Mine. Let's see. Are we going to call this weird dumbery? Um, I don't know. None of them, actually. I like it. Mine would be uh, self-care, going out, making time for yourself. I went out this week. I haven't gone out in so long. Um, I just got a, I don't know, got a, got a bee in my bonnet. And I went out to a um, bar that has karaoke and pool and uh look at you you little hellion (laughs) (laughs) oh you know me i'm just mixing it up no it was um super tame but it was a very fun night i mean bars bars are a little wild compared to what they were when i was last regularly going to bars what do you mean wild i mean I, I don't know if I want to rat out the people at my local bar, but all I'm going to say is that you can get away with a lot in bars with vapes now. Oh, really? I mean, what can you put in a vape that doesn't have too much smell? And not me, everybody else. Yeah, I, don't, I guess it's dependent on if it's a dive bar, right? Yeah, a bit of a dive bar. Yeah. But I mean, they had karaoke and there were there were a couple people with really incredible voices who don't really belong doing karaoke and dive bars. And that is just kind of the cool thing about small town dive bars is that who knows who's there that has no business should fucking be on American Idol or something. I don't know. We had a, we had a dive bar in California. It's funny. Just, I was just thinking about the vape thing where um, it was the only bar. I mean, this was 15 years ago, maybe. Where it was mm-hmm. the only bar in California, Southern California, where you could just go in and smoke, oh. because they made more. They would just pay the fines because they would make so much <laughs> money from people going there, so they could smoke and drink without having to go outside. Oh my god! I wonder if they. Still I mean, do I that. respect the energy. That was wild. I cut you off. Finish. Yeah. No, you're fine. I don't need it. I mean, I think that I had said everything I said. I mean, it was just a super chill night. You know, I just stayed for a few hours. Um, didn't drink a whole lot. Stayed completely sober. Um, hung out with some people. Uh, listened to karaoke. Had a great time. And went home. But man, I haven't done that in a while. I'm glad you went It out. has been a while. I am too. It was very... I had shit to do. I did not have time for this <laughs> at all. Um, it just, it was kind of a very unexpected plan that came together all of a sudden. And, um, it was just what I needed. It was exactly what I needed. Well, you should start doing more things that you need. I mean, I don't really know how often I actually need a bar. Well, I mean, (laughs) in general, like, don't, don't catch an addiction or anything. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) 
I'll try not to. I just want you to take care of yourself. You've been through a lot of changes this past year. I have. I have. And there, I don't know, there was just something about being like, you know what? Actually, fuck it. Yes. (laughs) Um, I am going to do that. I'm a fucking adult and I can and I will. And I did. And it was super fun. Makes my heart happy. Yeah. And then I went home and got some more stuff done because I am so old that I go to the bar and then go home and continue to be productive, (laughs) which is a little depressing, but it's fine. Oh, well, excellent, excellent episode. Thank you. I can't wait to hear hopefully part two. Yes, I am thinking that I may do a little bit more of a um, classic you know, classic. I'm I'm just setting the classics here with my own episodes. Um, you know, like more of like a five heroes, seven heroes thing like we did. Um, that was my plan for this one. But the Oliver Sipple story turned out to be kind of big. And I didn't want this to be four hours long. So. Well, perfect. Yeah. I, I bet that's what I'll do next week. I'm 90% sure that's what I'm going to do. Well, you know, next. You know what I, I don't know. You're going to bars and stuff now. I don't know who you I are. Who knows? Wild. I don't know who, who I am either. Who knows what you're You're mysterious. <laughs> I'm a hellion, Melanie. I'm thank you. <laughs> who knows what you're doing next week? I don't know. <laughs> I'm finally mysterious. I'm finally mysterious. Yeah. No, I mean I'm I'm too old to get up to too many shenanigans in a bar, but I don't know. Apparently I'm not too old for some fucking spontaneous plans to go just fucking have fun. Well, you have fun. Okay. All right. I will. Not too much. Until next time. Until next time. Sweet dreams or no dreams. Sweet dreams or no dreams. Hey, Horrible Ghouls. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you would like to share your personal MarkSafe moment, you can send it to us at MarkSafePodcast at gmail.com. Please give our podcast a rate, review, and subscribe, and tell your buddies about us too. That goes a long way. If you want to further elevate your support, check out our MarkSafe Patreon page, where we have shoutouts, goodies, and some bonus content in the works. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again, and as always, stay safe.